The winter solstice is not for another two weeks, but today's edition comes to you with a fresh memory of a little bit of snowfall in our corner of Central Virginia. This is the Charlottesville Community Engagement Newscast for Monday, December 7th, 2020. I'm your host, Sean Tubbs, and thanks for listening to another brief installment of What's Happened, What's Happening, and What's Coming Up. On today's show, a record-setting weekend for COVID-19 cases in Virginia. The Virginia Department of Health prepares for how to distribute vaccines. Virginia Republicans choose a method to choose a candidate for governor. And what are the benefits of wildlife crossings? In today's Patreon-fueled shout-out, the Local Energy Alliance program, your local energy nonprofit, wants to help you lower your energy bills, make your home more comfortable, and save energy. Schedule your home energy checkup to get started. Now only $45 for City of Charlottesville and Albemarle County residents. You'll receive energy-saving products and expert advice customized to your needs. Sign up today in the link in the newsletter. The statewide seven-day average for new daily cases of COVID-19 is at 3,005 today. On Saturday, the Virginia Department of Health reported 3,793 new cases, but there was a caveat that that figure included backlogged numbers. No such caveats were in place yesterday and today, with daily counts of 3,880 and 3,817, respectively. The percent positivity has increased to 10.8%, up from 7.4% on Thanksgiving Day. The seven-day average for new daily cases in the Blue Ridge Health District is now at 67, after a district record was set on Saturday with 106, followed by 102 yesterday and 92 today. For today's number, that breaks down to 31 from Albemarle, 15 from Charlottesville, 15 from Fluvanna, 8 from Green, 20 from Louisa, and 3 from Nelson. The Virginia Department of Health announced late Friday that the Commonwealth is slated to receive 480,000 vaccine doses by the end of December. These will consist of shots from both Pfizer and Moderna. This initial distribution will ensure 480,000 healthcare personnel and long-term care facility residents receive a first dose of the vaccine, beginning the inoculation process for nearly all members of Virginia's two top priority groups, if we receive this expected allotment. The first vaccine to ship is expected to be from Pfizer, which requires ultra-cold storage down to negative 70 degrees Celsius, and the 72,150 doses will be slated for healthcare workers who directly care for COVID-19 patients. Those in long-term care facilities will be administered shots by teams working with Walgreens and CVS through a federal partnership run by the Centers for Disease Controls. The release continues. The actual amount of vaccine received in Virginia is a moving target and dependent on when and how quickly vaccination doses are manufactured. VDH is coordinating future prioritization based on federal guidance. For more information, visit the VDH's vaccine page. There's a link in the newsletter. Virginia Republicans will choose their nominee for governor and other statewide offices in next year's election through an unassembled convention, which means the party will entirely control the process rather than use the state's electoral mechanism. In a close vote, the Republican State Central Committee on Saturday opted against a primary in which voters would have gone to the polls or voted early to choose a nominee. The motion was introduced by Michael Ginsburg, a representative from Virginia's 11th Congressional District. 
He said that a primary might result in a weak Republican candidate. I would imagine there's going to be four to six very strong, very competitive candidates running for governor next year, which means to me, I see us heading straight for an iceberg as a party. And that iceberg is that we can nominate a candidate that gets 30 to 35 percent of the vote in a primary. And that means that we're going to nominate potentially a candidate, that is to say, a candidate who has not, who's, who, for whom 65 to 70 percent of the Republican electorate has not voted for. Ginsburg's motion initially passed on a vote of 39 to 35. One of those in the minority was Tara Carroll, a representative from the 7th District. She said a primary would be a guaranteed event, whereas a traditional convention might need to be postponed due to COVID. I think that it's a waste of party financial resources and the candidates' financial and support resources that are better spent in the general election. Additionally, I think that conventions can be a very exclusive process that um, prohibits those of us um, that we need to have our votes in the general election. Young parents, military, students, um, due to time, financial, and travel constraints. Due to uncertainty related to COVID-19, Republicans acknowledged they could not hold a traditional convention, but did not want the state of Virginia to administer the elections, concerned with potential fraud. Steve Troxell is a representative from the 6th Congressional District. Uh, I like the idea of an unassembled convention because that takes care of the issues of people with small children, simply because all they have to do is come through, take care of business, and go away again. I'm also concerned about the inability of a lot of registrar's offices to guarantee that we have a clean election without a lot of um, spurious or questionable votes coming in. Two Republicans from the General Assembly have announced their candidacy. They are former Speaker of the House of Delegates Kirk Cox and Senator Amanda Chase. But Chase has announced she will now run as an independent because the Republicans have chosen not to go with a primary. One way to ensure and promote biodiversity is to reduce the number of animals that die when they're struck by vehicles moving at high speed. A recent video of an overpass crossing Interstate 80 in Utah recently went viral, raising awareness of an infrastructure movement that's taking hold across America. Susan Holmes is the federal policy director of the U.S. Wildlands Network. Wildlife corridor protection is so effective that 12 states, including Virginia and New Mexico, who you will hear from today, have already taken strong action to safeguard wildlife corridors and crossings by passing legislation or creating corridor conservation programs. Earlier this year, the General Assembly passed a bill introduced by Delegate David Belova of Fairfax to create a Wildlife Corridor Action Plan for the state. This plan is to identify wildlife corridors defined as areas connecting fragmented wildlife habitats that are separated by human activities or infrastructure, and recommend wildlife crossing projects intended to promote driver safety and wildlife connectivity. But where should these wildlife crossings go? Dr. Ron Sutherland is the chief scientist at the Wildlands Network, and he has this explanation. A wildlife road crossing is a structure that is designed to allow wildlife to safely cross over or under a busy road. One of the best places to put wildlife road crossings is, of course, where you have a wildlife corridor that gets cut off by a highway. As you know, roads are pretty much everywhere, and roads are quite skilled at fragmenting wildlife habitat. 
That's Bridget Donaldson, a scientist at the Virginia Transportation Research Council at the University of Virginia. She and her colleagues recently installed a pilot project on Interstate 64 west of Charlottesville that used fencing to direct creatures to an underpass. Her research indicates that reduced collisions. Her research indicates that the intervention reduced collisions by 90%. These kinds of numbers have been shown time and again with wildlife crossing research with effectiveness of between usually 85 to up to 97%. Donaldson said that so far, wildlife crossings are rare, but increased efforts to report carcasses has shown better data that can demonstrate their efficacy. Um, And because of the crash reduction that we saw of over 90%, and because of the relatively low cost of the fencing, there's an estimated savings, mostly from vehicle property damage, at each of those sites of over $2 million over the lifetime of the fencing. Donaldson said thousands of animals now use the crossings, including black bears. Today in meetings, the Albemarle Architectural Review Board meets at 1 p.m. and will review a new sheets at Airport Road, a preliminary site plan for the Albemarle Business Campus, and a new car wash near Forest Lakes. Charlottesville City Council meets at 6.30 p.m., and among other things, they'll consider a proposal for a city in western Guatemala to become the next sister city of Charlottesville. Check out the Week Ahead newsletter to learn more details. And that's it for today's edition of the Charlottesville Community Engagement Newsletter and Newscast for December 7, 2020, the 79th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. We are living in times that it might seem similar to that, with a lot of history in the last few years here in Charlottesville and in the nation around. We are living through a different time, and that is why I have decided to put this newsletter together each and every day to try to document these changing times that we're in and to try to figure out how we get to a different time in the future. One that is perhaps more resilient, more stable, more prosperous, who knows? All I know is that I really do thank you for your support of this show, either financial or moral, and I do encourage you to share it with other people so that we can continue to grow the audience. I'm Sean Tubbs, your host, and I'll be back tomorrow with another installment. In the meantime, stay safe out there. 